This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Voice Ask Me Anything, a special series from Full Story where we take your questions about the Indigenous voice to Parliament and put them to the people who have the answers. In this episode, co-chair of Yes 23, Rachel Perkins, answers your questions about race and the constitution and whether the Yes campaign was prepared for Australia's first referendum in the social media age. We also speak to a progressive no organiser about treaty and the meaning of black sovereignty. It's Thursday, the 28th of September. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm joined by the co-chair of Yes23, Rachel Perkins, who is an Arunda and Kalkadoon woman and a multi-award winning filmmaker. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you for having me. So, Rachel, you've been travelling around the country speaking to people about The Voice. So I imagine you get this first listener question quite a bit. Why does the government need a voice in the constitution to get advice on Indigenous affairs? The government certainly doesn't have all the answers to Indigenous challenges because we've seen that the gap, which we politely refer to as the difference between our livelihoods and our well-being as compared to our fellow Australians, is not on track to close. So the government, I think, needs the voice so that it can have advice from grassroots, people from within their communities who have the solutions and the lived experience and understand the cultural uh, and environmental context of their people And them providing advice, taking all of that expertise and lived experience is going to be very useful to government when government designs programs and policies that affect Indigenous people. Mm. The government has all sorts of advisory committees. We forget that, like the Productivity Commission and a whole suite of others, because, of course, government doesn't have the answers for everything. And what we find is that a lot of policies are developed, particularly where I'm from in Alice Springs, They're developed thousands of kilometres away in Canberra and they're not fit for purpose. So we want a voice that comes from community direct into government, direct into the bureaucracy, that's not filtered by the party process but is just an authentic Indigenous voice. Mm. You're not a politician or a campaigner by trade. You're a filmmaker and also the daughter of renowned activist Charles Perkins. 
Your father was a a leading advocate for yes at the 1967 referendum, where more than 90% of people did vote yes in the end. Currently, support for the yes campaign in this referendum is is much lower. Some polls put it at 38%. Why is this referendum playing out so differently? Well, the big difference is that it doesn't have bipartisan support and no referendum in Australia has ever succeeded that hasn't had bipartisan support. So there was no no case in 1967. Mm. Unfortunately, the coalition government decided at the very end of a very long process in which they were committed to constitutional recognition for a very long time, they decided not to commit to support the amendment. So that has made it very difficult. Our next listener question is about the previous Indigenous advisory bodies. They ask, why were all the previous committees abolished and does that mean that they weren't effective? Well, this is our great challenge and it's why we want the advisory body constitutionally enshrined because in my lifetime we've had five different bodies. It started with the NACC, the National Aboriginal Consultative Committee, in 1973 and there's been variations on that. What we find is that As governments change, they dismantle these things that we set up. So Mm. we go to all this huge effort, elect our representatives, spend a lot of time constructing these things, and then like the NACC, it's destroyed in five years and then set up with another body, and then that's destroyed and another body is set up. And so what we're trying to do is build consistency and build knowledge and research and an evidence base that can continue over time, not be just swept away every few years, Mm. which is what we find, and not to have necessarily people that are appointed by government. One of the principles around The Voice is that it be elected, not selected, elected by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Your father, Charles Perkins, was elected to the Indigenous Advisory Body, ATSIC, and also headed it up for a year or so, I believe. That was abolished in 2004 by John Howard, who said it was a failure. Was it? Well, it wasn't an advisory body, actually. It was much more than that, because unlike this advisory body that we're talking about, it had a number of functions. It could give grants, run programs, and it actually did, over its 10-year period, build up a huge body of evidence and policy and leadership, Indigenous leadership as well. Mm. ATSIC did some very good things. It had some failures, as all institutions do. I mean, if we looked at the parliament and looked at all of the failures that it has had and all of the problems it has encountered, we still persist trying to improve it. And one would have hoped that that would have been the path that was taken with ATSIC, but no. We don't abolish parliament when it fails. The Productivity Commission, which is Parliament's own advisory body, said that governments, both state and federal, have not come to terms with the challenge and the commitments that they made under the Closing the Gap Agreement. And they've said that their response is weak and that they haven't grappled with the scope of it and they're just doing business as usual. So mm. there's a independent advice on the progress of government, but we're not abolishing the government, are we? Many listeners have written in asking about common claims from the No campaign. One of them is, and I quote, that the amendment to the Constitution is race-based, therefore it is racist. Rachel, what do you have to say to that? Well, Indigenous people have had to put up with racist provisions and policies and abuse for a very, very long time. So it is a bit rich to say that we are now racialising the Constitution People should know that since 1901, the Constitution has had race-based provisions in it. Mm. 
Section 25 and 5126, which 5126 allows the Commonwealth to make laws about any race of people. We're not talking about inserting race into the Constitution. We're talking about inserting recognition into the Constitution, Mm. which is not about race. It's about, as John Howard said, the special nature of the status of First Nations people. It's not about race. Absolutely not. And people are saying that we're trying to divide the country by race. Well, it's got nothing to do with race because race is, in fact, a complete social construct. Indigenous people have been racialized all of our lives. We've had racist policies. We don't want anything about race. We want the recognition as First Nations people. Mm. We want a constitution that reflects the modern nation of Australia and that doesn't deny its heritage and its First Nations people anymore because for 122 years it has. The No campaign has raised a lot of questions about the Uluru Statement. Jacinta Price has asked about whether it's one page or 26 pages. And on Tuesday, Warren Mundine called it a symbolic declaration of war. And he also said that the Yes campaign is built on a pack of lies. What's your response to that? I know Warren. He's a good guy. And I feel very disappointed that he has framed what is a very unifying ask on our country from First Nations people. To frame it as a declaration of war is so many miles from the intention of that document and the spirit in which it was created. I was present when people unanimously accepted the statement, apart from, as we know, the seven people who walked out. It was a moment of great unity, of great joy. I've been all around the country with the statement. I've read it to people and the overwhelming message that people respond to the statement is with hope, hope for a better country, hope for a better future for Indigenous people, and hope that we finally recognise the First Nations foundations of this country. It is a hopeful document that tries to bring the nation together. Mm. And I think the No Case are doing their best, can I say, to create division and misinformation around what that statement actually is. And they will be remembered in history for what they are doing now. We will look back on this moment, depending on whether it gets up or not, and, you know, we know that it's in the balance. History will remember their behaviour in relation to this really historic opportunity for unity. And, you know, my dad always used to say, we forgive but we never forget, and this will not be forgotten by Indigenous people, what's gone on in these last few weeks of this campaign, particularly in relation to these words about the Uluru Statement, which is really a gift to the nation of peacefulness and unity, not division. It does seem like this misinformation is cutting through. One of our listeners wrote in about this claim about the Uluru Statement from the Heart being 26 pages, and they asked why the Yes campaign is unable to tell the truth about this, and they said this issue means that they don't trust the Yes campaign. Do you think that your campaign and and the government were prepared for this type of misinformation? This is the first referendum in the social media age. Were you ready? To be honest, possibly not. Mm. I think that the outright lies that have been said, and I'm not naming any particular individuals here, but I was at a rally in Adelaide and a woman, Indigenous woman, as part of the No group, got up and said that, the voice was going to take over government, that it was a communist plot, that we were all communists, and that 
people should go home and check the deeds for their property because the voice would come for their homes and all property rights would be assumed by the voice. And that was said at a rally of four or 500 people and it was an absolute disgraceful set of lies. And so this is the company that the No campaign are in. There's a big crossover with conspiracy theorists, anti-vaxxers that has infiltrated the No movement. We've seen white supremacists associated with this movement. Mm -hmm. It's a very difficult time for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to have to endure this sort of commentary. I've been door knocking, I've been subject to abuse and just had to listen to a whole lot of racist stereotypes about my people. It's not easy, but we're used to it, aren't we? We've had to put up with it for so long, for so long, and here we're trying to bring this positive moment to Australia of unity. And I think we can get there if Australians actually read the amendment and they will see in the amendment that it simply is suggesting that we should agree to give an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to give advice to Parliament and the executive. And that is it. That is all it is saying. It's not saying anything about treaty. It's not saying anything about property rights. It's not saying anything about the Communist Party. It's just an advisory committee. Seriously, it's so modest. It's so modest, but it's being projected as a threat to our democracy that's going to undermine the parliament. So anyway, what can you say? It's very difficult with social media and powerful media forces that are monopolised in the hands of a few. It makes the job of sharing factual information very difficult. One listener asks, what would prevent a future government from restructuring the voice to leave us with one that's not at all representative of what Indigenous Australians want from the voice to parliament, such as turning it, for example, into an unelected body? We don't want to return to hand-picked representatives of government speaking on behalf of communities. We want the grassroots voices to come through. But yes, the voice is in the hands of government. The shape of the voice, the powers of the voice are in the hands of government. And hopefully there will be elected Aboriginal representatives that will continue to insist that the voice be shaped in partnership with Indigenous people. There is less than three weeks left to the referendum, despite the door knocking and the advertising blitz and all these public events, you, you know, we are seeing support for Yes continue to drop. What is your message for those who are still making up their minds? Well, I would say that this isn't a situation where an, a nuanced no is going to be read as a progressive no. In this referendum, you can only vote yes or no. And if you vote no and you want more, I think a no vote will put back our cause because I think the government will assume and the opposition will certainly assume that there's not a mandate to progress Indigenous issues. I think that will be the interpretation. Oh, the public don't support the voice, so it's not really high on their agenda, so we don't need to really worry about the Indigenous agenda. So I think that this is a step. It's not going to change the situation of Indigenous people overnight. No one's ever suggested that it would, but it is a long game we're playing here to cement Indigenous participation in our democracy as a cornerstone of it that we as First Nations people will continue to be heard, mm. will always be heard. And that surely, surely is a step forward. 
The other thing is that when you look at our representative organisations where they do exist, predominantly that would be land councils and native title bodies, the overwhelming majority on the mainland, so like all four in the Northern Territory, Cape York, Kimberley, New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council, all support the voice. Hmm. And it is just a step forward. It's another step forward. No is just the status quo, right? No is just business as usual. Okay, we're back to governments just making policies on Indigenous people, you know, and pick and choosing who they want to hear from. Is that really what we want? Certainly not what my community wants. We want a seat at the table. And we believe the voice is the way to get this in the very short term. Treaty is possibly a decade off, if not more. So this is upon us. We've got less than 20 days. I'm advocating for yes because it's a step in the right direction towards a better future. And if we don't get it across the line now, I'm not sure when the opportunity will come again, certainly not in my lifetime. So the stakes are very high. Next, an Indigenous no voter on why he thinks a treaty needs to come first. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm now joined by Bo Spearham, a Gamilaray, Kuma and Marawari man and the creator and host of the Frontier War Stories podcast. He's also the convener of the grassroots activist group Treaty Before Voice. Can you tell me about your work on, on the podcast, but also in this campaign? My podcast is uh, Frontier War Stories and it looks at the first uh, 140 years of conflict and resistance. Uh, it looks to sort of tell the stories that have been hidden from the history books or from the classrooms. Treaty for Voice, um, you know, we don't advocate that we know what goes into a treaty or that, you know, we're sort of the controls of a treaty. We're just saying that this process is a process that's been advocated for a long time and it shouldn't be left out. Bo, the, the first listener asks, does the voice go far enough? Yeah, me personally, no, I don't think it goes far enough. And I think because a lot of people have been left out of this conversation, uh, a, lot of, a lot of mob, a lot of, a lot of old people who have been advocating for something that could go even further than a voice, you know, um, treaties and Michael Mansell's sort of seven-state concept. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of ideas out there. A black parliament, I don't think um, any state or federal sort of politicians can liberate Aboriginal people. I think, you know, that's only we can do that. And we can do that through the continued grassroots of grassroots activism that we've been doing that have been falling on deaf ears. Mm. And, yeah, so I'll be definitely voting a big N-O Back home in Gumroy, we'll say uh, Gummel, so I'll be voting Gummel. Mm. 
So the next listener question is, why was the voice pushed before treaty? Obviously, Bo, you and others are advocating for treaty before voice. Why did you believe that we need a treaty first? You know, well, this is the thing, like, the voice was sort of put forward before anything, you know, like, we've, we have we didn't get the chance to sort of see what uh, was building in the grassroots for the last 50 years. We All we got handed was uh, a voice to parliament, which is just sort of this new sort of version of uh, the recognised campaign to include blackfellas somehow uh, in the constitution. I mean, those in the Yes campaign would say that this has been a long time coming and that there were meetings around the country and speaking to different mobs and, you know, coming to a consensus position in Uluru. What do you say to that? Well, that's right. That did happen. Then, you know, Megan Davis, one of the main conveners, came out and said they deliberately left out, you know, uh, political Aboriginal leaders in the community in various different communities around the country from entering these dialogues. You know, let's get it right. Like this whole process has, you know, been an unequal process. Um, you know, it's only like not even 1% of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people that would have participated uh, in these sort of regional dialogues and then also at Uluru as well. I want to put some statements to you from the Yes campaign about the sequencing here. They say that the Uluru Statement, well, we know that the Uluru Statement calls for voice treaty truth in that order for a particular reason, and that's to create a body that can get then advise on treaty and the truth-telling processes. They've also pointed out that modern-day treaties in other countries have taken decades to come to fruition. Are you willing to to wait decades for advancement on any of those things, voice, treaty or truth? Oh, you know, to think that, you know, me as somebody who's 34 years old will just sort of jump to the first thing that I don't feel comfortable with would be an injustice to, you know, uh, elderly people, our old followers uh, and our veteran activists uh, who has sort of been campaigning, you know, for true self-determination through different avenues over the last 50 years. Would you say that you're, I suppose, happier to wait and get it right? Is it, that's kind of what I'm hearing here. Definitely, definitely. You know, you know, and, and it's something that we all got to get right as Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people. Mm. I want to go back to treaty for a moment. There has been a split over treaty emerging in the no camp. Opposition leader Peter Dutton says that if elected, he would not pursue a treaty. But Warren Mundine supports it and believes that a no vote would actually pave the way for a treaty process. Do you agree with Warren Mundine there? I believe in the process that, you know, progressive black followers want a treaty. I don't, like, you know, Warren Mundine's too far right and too far gone for me to sort of sit here and say that what I think uh, he's doing is anything good. I just think he's pandering to sort of whatever's happening to his party and to him. How do you see the relationship between progressive no and the no campaign more broadly? It's a racist and it's a conspiracy theory-filled sort of space. To be honest, I feel the Yes campaign and sort of how this process has been run is very racist and very anti-Aboriginal uh, as well. You know, I don't feel as if the Yes or the sort of racist No is somewhat different in terms of their approach to not listening, you know, to progressive Aboriginal people. And not just now, but, you know, for, for, for so long. I want to delve into sovereignty as a concept a bit further. We've had a lot of listener questions about this and one listener asks, what is black sovereignty as a general definition? Bo? Oh, you ask any black fellow, you're going to get, you know, uh, as many answers as you would with any other uh, general question. To me, it's sort of, you know, having the choice and, and the right and the responsibility to have a say 
it's our birthright. Me having the right to sort of jump in this podcast and sort of have an open dialogue with you and say, look, you know, for me to feel as a sovereign within this country, I want to have my voice be heard as equally as anybody else. Blackfellas, you know, marching down the street very proudly, you know, to say stop, you know, murdering our people, stop, you know, destroying our land. You know, that's us actively getting out there and sort of expressing our our sovereign uh, rights. Same listener had a follow-up question. They ask, are claims regarding the impact of a voice on black sovereignty justified or, or backed up by evidence? Bo, what do you think about this claim that, you know, amending the constitution will negatively impact sovereignty? I'm a firm believer that nothing can sort of take our sovereignty. Like I said, I don't believe anything could, you know, usurp the sovereignty of Aboriginal people. Mm. But then obviously physically they can implement, you know, uh, laws and legislation as they did in the past to sort of impede on, you know, our sovereign rights. But as an Aboriginal person, I know deep down that this is and always will be black follow land and, I, and, and, you know, I belong in the country. I'm not just an Aboriginal person. I'm Gumari Kuma and Marawari. We know that yes, polling is at its lowest ever, as low as 38% by some counts, and a no outcome looks like a strong possibility. So one listener asks, are no campaigners worried, including progressive no campaigners, that if the voice doesn't pass, political parties will be too scared to pursue First Nation issues from now on? Well, this is the thing, like we've put too much faith in political parties to begin with at this stage. You know, like 1988 was like you know, a very pivotal time for our people, you know, because that was one of the largest gatherings of blackfellas in Sydney at Bicentennial for the 200th anniversary, you know, like we were leading a lot of stuff from the front foot, you know, everything that we have today, you know, came from those blackfellas back then and was never given to us at goodwill or as uh, a good gesture, you know, it was fought for, you know, I was bled for. I, I suppose the... The campaign for constitutional recognition and for The Voice has built up many supporters amongst non-Indigenous people across Australia. So I'm wondering for you and for the Progressive No camp, what is the plan if Australia votes no to harness that goodwill? We make sure that they turn up on the 26th of January and we continue to organise, you know, and we don't be sort of blind, blinded by campaigns you know, specific campaigns, you know, you know, like this sort of voice campaign, like they, they have tunnel vision just for this and everything else they can't see. The Yes campaign is harnessing this goodwill, this goodwill that has been built off the back of a lot of progressive young black followers, uh, a lot of progressive older black followers who have been advocating for so long. All, all that I keep thinking of is I can't wait till this, this shit's over and then you know, that whoever wins and, and loses whatever happens, nobody takes it to heart and then holds grudges, especially against our own people. Mm. You know, like I'm one that will just sort of wipe my hands with it and just sort of get on with the job that needs to be done. Oh, that's all my questions. Thank you. All good. That was Bo Spearham, a convener of Treaty Before Voice. Earlier, you heard from the co-chair of Yes23, Rachel Perkins. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe or follow Full Story if you haven't yet already, and you can also leave a review. This episode was produced by Phoebe McElwraith and Alison Chan, sound design and mixing by James Milson. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.